You know, I think the misnomer is that like, TV is dying and it's just like, no, like traditional TV distribution is dying. Uh, everything is going to happen via broadband, but we're watching more TV. We have access to more TV than we've ever had or more content, however you want to categorize it. Um, and the opportunities to monetize that we're just really starting to understand. Welcome back to Blood, Sweat, and CPMs, Freestar's podcast covering all things ad tech. If you're a fan of the podcast, you may notice a new voice of your speakers today. I'm Kurt Donnell, CEO here at Freestar, and in this new season of the podcast, I'll be taking over as your host. We have a great episode for you today as I have the pleasure of speaking with Will Doherty of Index Exchange. I first got to know Will through the incredible newsletter he wrote, which many of you probably read, covering the impact of the pandemic on digital advertising throughout 2020. I've been lucky enough to build a personal friendship with him through this year, and I'm thrilled that he was willing to join us for today's episode. Will is Chief of Marketplace Development for Index Exchange, where he focuses on identifying and securing new partners across programmatic platforms and digital marketers to ensure they have access to the cleanest and most premium publishers in the programmatic landscape. During his tenure at Index, he's helped orient client operations in New York City and establish Index as a premier global advertising exchange. Prior to joining Index, he oversaw business development for NetMining and Tackle.com, which is acquired by Alloy Media. His expertise in the ad tech landscape has been recognized by industry publications, including Ad Age, Ad Week, Ad Exchanger, and Digiday. Such a pleasure to welcome Will to the show today. As a note to our listeners, today's podcast was recorded before Google pushed out the deadline for the deprecation of third-party cookies. While the timeline has been extended, the issue remains, and I hope you enjoy the conversation with Will on that topic. Awesome. Hey, Will, thanks so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So let's dive right in here. Um, would love to hear a little bit about your story and how you got into this crazy ad tech uh, industry of ours. Yeah. So I joined a social media startup. Uh, and I think the great thing about being young and working for a startup is uh, even though you don't know how to do anything, uh, they ask you to do a lot of things and just figure it out. Um, and so we were in like the high school sports category, uh, and I found myself going out and I'd secured like the, the streaming rights, uh, to all these like high school championship events and, and, and different things. And, and it was great. We had the rights to do it. Um, but we had no way to stream anything. Uh, this is like pre iPhone pre like, you know, ubiquitous Wi-Fi. um, cellular plans are pretty crappy. Uh, so I started talking to these various streaming companies, you know, people who provided the backend technology for these things. And I got to know one of the guys, uh, at one of these companies really well. Um, needless to say, we never got a live broadcast off the ground. Um, but I did get to know a lot about streaming and then when inevitably our startup, uh, went belly up, um, he's like, Hey, I really liked working with you. Would you consider coming over here and working for us on the streaming side? So I went and did that and I did that for a year and, and I learned a bit on there and still in the sports category. Um, and so then I was somewhat adjacent to the, uh, ad tech space because that's how a lot of our clients were monetizing their streams, whether it was the NHL or formula one. And, uh, so did that for a little while. Um, and then, uh, an old friend from the social media startup had applied to a job and, uh, for, for, a, a what is now a DSP, but I don't know if it was considered one then. 
He's like, hey, I don't think this job is right for me. It's a business development job, but it's in the ad tech side. Is that something you think you'd be interested in? I can put you in touch with the recruiter. And I remember interviewing um, and, you know, I was learning about ad tech in the interview. I really didn't have like, you know, domain experience here. Um, but we were going through it and then it became clear like, oh, there's a lot of contracts, partnership negotiations. Well, I actually know how to do that. I did all of that at the start. We never wanted to pay the lawyer. So like I did all the contracts. I learned to do that. And they're like, <laughs> oh, well, if you can do that, we'll teach you all the tech stuff. So like this is like, uh, you know, a marriage like this works. Um, so it's like, you never know how you end up in these things, but it, it literally fell into it from that standpoint. Um, and then for whatever reason, once we started doing it and I started managing supply and all of our supply partnership relationships, um, the tech piece and, and, you know, I was a history and African-American studies major in college. So I like, you know, I cheated on computer programming in high school. Like I, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think that was an area, but for whatever reason, it just made sense to me. Um, and so, you know, actually, and I've been fortunate enough. And so that was like, you know, and then seven, eight years ago and meeting with Andrew uh, over at Index, uh, that became, you know, kind of similar story. We like working together as, as partners. Uh, and he's like, hey, we're expanding into New York. And then I said, well, I think that that'd be a good role for me. Please hire me. Uh, and, and I've been here ever since. Uh, and my job here has probably changed five or six times uh, or like expanded. Um, but yeah, it certainly was not when I was, you know, slinging vitamins at a outlet mall <laughs> in Riverhead, New York, did I think this is where I would end up. Um, but yeah, it's kind of funny how these things happen. I feel like everybody has a weird ad tech origin story. But I love that story. Um, mine is actually oddly somewhat similar. I'm a recovering lawyer who uh, left a law firm to go into a digital media publisher, pretty quickly took over running business development, and the same thing. It's very useful when you can negotiate your own contracts. On the BD side, I actually think business development's a great way to get into a company because you have to know a little bit about everything to be able to go out and sell it. Do you, do you have that same feeling? I think it's just such a great launching off point. I couldn't agree more. I really couldn't. Awesome. Well, I, I first got my uh, introduction to you, I guess it's been probably a year and a half ago now, when you started writing the newsletters for Index, kind of giving uh, updates on the industry and sort of trends and everything throughout COVID. And I personally loved it so much, I would forward it to people and say how much I wanted to get a beer with Will, because uh, there was a great <laughs> level of humor, incredible depth of knowledge in those. Um, it really was very well done. And so kind of want to keep going off of that and would love to know kind of what are the themes that you're seeing you know, kind of post-pandemic, or at least as we're emerging from the pandemic, maybe looking back at the first half of 2021 and I guess into the second half as well. Yeah. So I would say two categories that, you know, always did well in programmatic, but became, you know, brought forward by years in terms of acceleration and impact were definitely CPG and retail in particular. Um, you know, I think CPG uh, recognized COVID or not, people still needed the essentials um, and uh, they leaned in hard. Uh, and, and if anything, they became more important as we became you know, stuck at home and, and all those things like in terms of healthcare and, and saying, you know, sanitizing ourselves and our homes and all those things. So they leaned into that. And then retail for, um, you know, both for e-commerce companies and then for companies that were maybe only half in on e-com, it became their only lifeline. Um, so they had to go all in. So maybe maybe retailers that might have been 50% in-store promotions, they quickly transitioned their entire marketing effort to e-com. Uh, and those trends have largely persisted into this year. 
And then we're also starting to see in the last, I'd say, six to eight weeks, a pretty miraculous, well, I guess it's not really miraculous, expected comeback in the travel sector. So as vaccinations tend to pick up, you know, uh, we're, we're seeing travel and investment in travel pick up as well. Makes sense. That's a category that's certainly going to need to advertise to get back on its feet. It probably still won't be, you know, say February 2020 numbers until, you know, we round into 2022. Um, but I do think that that category in particular is probably going to have to do more than most to uh, get back to some semblance of normalcy. There's also a lot of pent up demand that they want to capture as well. A lot of habits were broken. Uh, so things that will come back. Um, and then uh, the other interesting one is as vaccinations gone up. And this is I don't know if this is, you know, Correlation isn't causation, but I, I ran, a, a, you know, the numbers for uh, vaccination rates along alcohol spend and like shots are going up with shots. Uh, so so that's coming kind of a, a fun story to tell. Um, uh, but, yeah, I would say in terms of industry categories, uh, yeah, th- those are the big predominant ones. And, and business and finance, I think, stepped up as well. Um, but yeah, we're starting to get into an equilibrium. There isn't as many kind of drastic month on month changes outside of travel since, you know, in the last six to seven months. Gotcha. Across our base of customers, we've seen CPMs maybe be a little more linear this year versus some of the spikiness that we have seen historically where there's pretty big quarterly resets. It's felt a little more uh, flat on the curve this year. Have you seen that in your business across a broader swath of supply? Yeah, I'd say things are more stable uh, from that vantage point. Um, probably the bigger difference is, um, or not even a bigger difference, but one of the trends that is definitely accelerated in, in kind, and depending on uh, your publisher mix, uh, the, the impact of this will be you know, really acute or, or maybe soft, which is uh, video, in particular CTV, uh, has become sort of the the dominant uh, means by which marketers are kind of expressing their budget. So I would say from an agency standpoint, they're seeing marketer budgets come back and increase. Uh, but a larger portion of that is dedicated to, I would say, the more emerging formats within the streaming sectors. Um, it's a completely different market. CPMs are extremely high. Uh, there's, you know, tends to be consolidation around like very few premium publishers which I, I think is going to open up an opportunity long term as the mid and long tail of that market becomes more tenable, more safe, uh, more transparent. Um, so that's a journey that we see happening. But yeah, I'd say s- the stability on just banner and like maybe standard web video has been pretty consistent most of the year. Gotcha. Sticking on that CTV vein, what do you think the potential of that market is? Um, obviously, the open web as it exists right now feels like a fairly infinite playground that continues to expand daily. It feels like CTV may have a few more constraints around it in terms of, I guess, potential of where that growth goes to some extent. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I I don't think it will ever, um, you know, one of the things that programmatic was really good at solving for um, within, you know, let's just say desktop or mobile web was an infinite amount of supply. There was more opportunity to serve ads than there were, you know, sort of demand to appease. Um, and the, the ability to, you know, for supply to grow was, was literally endless. That's just not the case with streaming or TV-like experiences. You know, the distribution point may not be broadcast or cable anymore, but people, you know, 
when you're streaming or watching TV or any any kind of show, it it requires time. You are bound by, you know, time itself. Uh, ads and the ability to show those ads will also be constrained by time as well. There's also production and everything else that goes into it. You know, it's uh, anybody could, you know, write a hundred words. I certainly did a bunch last year and, you know, federated into the internet and how many people see it will, will just be, you know, related to, you know, how popular it is. Um, you know, with, I'd say streaming or CTV advertising, um, there will just always be natural constraints, but the impact for that advertising will probably um, be bigger. It would be better from a brand awareness standpoint and everything else. I think it will, it will represent the upper portion of the funnel really well. You know, I think the misnomer is that like, TV is dying and it's just like, no, like traditional TV distribution is dying. Uh, everything is going to happen via broadband, but we're watching more TV. We have access to more TV than we have ever had or more content, however you want to categorize it. Um, and the opportunities to monetize that we're just really starting to understand. Um, but I do think it will always be a supply constrained environment. Obviously, programmatic has continued to grow on sort of the display side of things. What do you think the future of CTV is from sort of a direct private marketplace or more open market programmatic standpoint is going to be? And how does that shift over time? Yeah, I'd say most CTV by default is private right now. The open market isn't really... Um, doesn't have the same sort of impact. Um, but we're also in a very young sector uh, of our industry. So I think a lot of this is subject to change and change quickly. Um, I think the open market will present a lot of value uh, to marketers over time because the opportunities to advertise um, you know, within premium environments or ad-only environments or hybrid environments um, and then there will be some inventory that will be forever closed to advertisers. I, I don't know when or if a Netflix will ever choose to go down that route. Um, but I do think, you know, your Hulus and HBO Maxes and probably Disney's will figure out a way to marry those two things together. Um, we paid for cable before we got ads, um, you know, but there are certain experiences that lend itself better than that. But I do think there's a lot of value in the open market that's yet to be fully explored. There's also some risk there, too, um, because uh, the transparency tools and CTV just aren't as robust as we have for the rest of the web. But that, those are very fixable problems. Like Those aren't long-term you know, blockers to success. I just think as more budgets go in, there'll be more requirements for marketers, and any of those kind of asymmetries will start to dissipate. I think that makes a ton of sense. Um... Switching gears here a little bit to another sort of non-web portion of uh, our industry, what are your thoughts on sort of the in-app ID deprecation and the long-term impacts and perhaps opportunities that arise from that? Yeah, um, it's certainly chaotic, um, you know, and I would say what's fascinating is that um, the in-app business, and when we say in-app, we're really talking about mobile gaming by and large, like it's the vast preponderance of it. And there's some things I didn't really even understand about it myself until recently, which is the mobile gaming space is actually bigger than the PC and console space combined. Um, so the opportunity is there, but the, the way in which those you know, opportunities have been taken uh, are, are mostly by other developers or other you know, mobile gaming companies. Uh, what they're looking for is high value users, people who spend a lot of money within the game itself. Um, and a lot of the economics of that industry are predicated on bringing in like a small, but very valuable cohort into their games. Uh, and that's, what's, you know, 
kind of driven very high CPM prices. Uh, the waterfall that we've completely disintermediated in standard programmatic is very much still alive in the NF space because there's a lot of incentives to keep it there. And, you know, when you remove the data point that was feeding some really tremendous CPMs, like I don't think anybody in our sector really completely understands how high CPMs could get in the in-app space. I'm talking like, you know, $100 to $400 CPMs for the right user. But when you take away the mechanism in which to identify that user, um, what you have is a huge de-averaging event. Um, and so as those CPMs come down, I think a couple things happen. One, uh, the marketplace becomes a lot more uh, attractive to, to marketers and brands that maybe didn't invest before. I think mobile gaming just as a category is no longer considered niche just because of the vast amount of people across all different kinds of age, gender and demo categories that, that participate in it. Um, and so, so now there's an economic argument for like, there's a lot of value here that marketers should be investing in. And then for developers who, you know, used to be able to work with a handful of partners, um, to create a monetization strategy, um, this will naturally, I think, force them to look outside those existing incumbents and start to say like, how do we create bridges to other brands and marketers? So I do think it's like a, a as disruptive as it is to the status quo, for many of us, we're not really disrupted by that status quo. Um, and it creates a huge opportunity, I'd say, for programmatic uh, or, or let's just say the legacy programmatic players to, to make this a more palatable market, um, both for marketers and brands. Um, so, I, so I see it as a, a way of it's actually going to uh, allow for a convergence to happen there that was somewhat gated for a while. Um, just because of how disruptive it will be. But that's still going to take time. I mean, it'll be a while before, uh, you know, Google follows, follows suit, but we know they will. Uh, so Android will initially be the benefactor of, of these changes. Um, the long-term implications of this could be really interesting too, um, depending on how Apple plays it. Um, but yeah, I do think there's a, there's a massive opportunity brewing in the in-app space. We certainly agree on the Freestar side. We have a full in-app offering where we take care of the full sort of ad management piece there and have sort of a mix of the legacy waterfall with the real-time bidding and the ability to kind of smartly move there. So we're very bullish on where that market's going. And I think it's finally time for it to catch up, frankly, with desktop and mobile web from a real-time bidding standpoint and feel like this next 12 to 18 months is going to be pretty pivotal, pivotal in the in-app space for sure. Uh, keeping going down the list of things we've got going on in the industry right now, any thoughts on sort of supply path optimization and really when we'll start to feel the true impact of that? Um, you know, we hear a lot of things coming on the trade desk and various other folks on their preferences there, but curious on when you think that will actually happen. Oh, I think it's happening. Uh, I think it has been happening. The, you know, SPO, um, you know, I, I think maybe we ascribe greater meaning to it than, than, it deserves, but effectively what, what it comes down to is choice. So all things being equal, um, you know, SSPs don't necessarily have differentiated access, uh, to any inventory. What would be the difference between one SSP or another? Is it going to be, you know, the actual technology? Are they able to run at scale? Um, can they do it in a timely fashion? Probably the biggest thing to solve for if you're an exchange or you're in programmatic is time itself. Uh, time is increasingly valuable, um, but it's, you know, not some sort of unique or 
a differentiated access point to supply. So it really commoditizes the entire layer. Um, and now with, you know, I'd say transparency on multiple fronts, both, you know, from a publisher domain standpoint, whether that's sellers.json or buyers.json, um, the value that we provide is scale at a highly efficient cost. Um, and so once you have that, you know, now buyers have a choice. I, you know, I have multiple paths to a certain publisher. Which one makes the most economic sense for me? Which one is the partner I like to work with? And then I want to choose and, and work with those partners. So you're seeing it happen both on the marketer side and the holding company side. Um, I don't think we ever get to a place where there's a single SSP or anything along those lines. Um, choice is good, um, but you probably don't need 30 choices anymore. Uh, maybe you need you know, 10 or something less than 10. Um, and as more economies of scale are created, as people, you know, start to consolidate to, you know, a handful of the market leaders and the incumbents, it drives the cost of the technology down itself because an SSP's cost is relative to the amount of requests it sends, not the amount of impressions it wins. So on the same cost base, if we're serving more ads, our, our take rates can, can fall in suit. Um, so we're seeing that happen uh, at scale, which is a good thing because then it means that, you know, all this tech that marketers were subsidizing by virtue of being fragmented out across too many partners, they can reclaim that efficiency for themselves. They can use it to invest in more publishers, more ad spend. We get better journalism. We get better content. Um, and then, you know, the transactional cost of each impression becomes something we don't even have to think about. There's a pretty relevant example in most of our lives that we've, we've looked at over the last year in COVID, which is, you know, most stock trading platforms, you don't have to think about the cost of acquiring the stock itself. It's sometimes free or so nominal that it's insignificant. Um, ultimately, that's probably the model that our category will fall into. Um, so at great scale, um, cost goes down, uh, and then the value is, is held by both the publisher and the marketer in those instances. Um, we still have a ways to go. There's still a lot more, I'd say, consolidation to happen. Um, but ultimately, I think as an SSP, you know, if, you know, we see ourselves very much being on the infrastructure um, side of the equation. Like That's the business that we're in, and we think about things that way. Um, and we are, you know, there to support media owners and media creators um, so that they withhold or uh, keep more of the marketer dollar for themselves. When we're doing our job, that's what's happening. So I, I think we're going to continue to see more of it. Um, I don't think the walled gardens go away, uh, but they won't have the same interests. Um, they're quite conflicted on most transactions, but that's... You know, but that can be very lucrative for them. I, I, you know, I never get surprised when these companies work in their own self-interest. That's often why they are who they are. Um, but I do think that there is uh, an opportunity for there to be scaled, excuse me, independent alternatives um, within that. W well, not just within our category, but the categories at large. It's, you know, Trade Desk has been doing really well and and others. You can feel free to uh, skip this question if it's too much inside baseball, but do you think we'll ever see vertical integration of the DSP and SSP landscape into sort of one layer? No. I mean, it, you, we have it already. I mean, Google does it and some others do it. You'll definitely see it on the in-app side for a while. Um, but, you know, uh, 
the the amount of tolerance I think for that long term, um, and those conflicts of interest are also pretty uh, distracting if you get to a pretty big size. Um, you know, uh, I imagine working at those companies that kind of have that kind of vertical integration, like um, they spend a lot more time having to explain those conflicts of interest than, you know, maybe the value that they provide, you know, not to say people won't do those things. I mean, they will. I just think the long-term benefits of it are far outweighed by the costs, uh, both legal and operational to doing it. I think I agree with you there. The challenges that would come with that definitely seem fairly ominous particularly the perception issue in a lot of ways is very, very real there. Um, given this is an ad tech podcast, I wouldn't be doing my job if I didn't ask you about your thoughts on sort of the impending cookie changes and, and what Google may do on that front here and your kind of bet on the timeline for when anything actually does happen. Yeah. Um, well, I think it's happening. Um, and, and there's no doubt about that. Though I, I, I'm probably not as, um, I don't know, uh, our, our industry has a tendency to, you know, do uh, be very hyperbolic about these changes. And it's, it's always the death of this and this whole thing is over. And every, like, you know, we go through this cycle every six to nine months. Some change happens. Someone institutes a policy thing. Like GDPR was supposed to wipe out, you know, programmatic. It didn't, you know, these are all f- like whether it's regulation um, or, or privacy as a marketing tool uh, in, in terms of Apple, um, they're, they're, they're signs of a maturing industry. So the, the fact that there's more conversations around that, I think, is, is largely a good thing. Um, there'll just be more change for us to deal with. But, you know, we're not a 50-year-old, you know, fossil fuel burning industry where the cost of change is, you know, kind of foreign to us. Like, our business changes every three to four years by default. Um, so this will just be the next change to, to weather. Uh, cookies were really convenient, but they were pretty rickety as a, a, as a long-term you know, targeting solution. Um, so I think we find our way around it. I think the web kind of cleaves itself into two camps. One is um, going to be a highly addressable, um, authenticated, logged-in audience, um, and publishers will hopefully reclaim most of the value of being able to um, you know, say I have this one-to-one relationship with these consumers, uh, and that may be much more uh, scarce uh, and defined and valuable for those reasons. Um, then the rest of the web, I, I think um, the anonymized cohort uh, sort of flock version of it, I think is fine too, and, and it's probably about um, has a, or similar efficacy as third-party data um, at scale. So I think if it can be as good or better than third-party data, um, it'll be fine. Um, there, there will be some value um, decay uh, in the short term. Um, but there's one thing our industry knows how to do really well is, is sort of pivot with these changes. Um, so, so that part doesn't really um, worry me. I just think it'll also bring in some new d- disciplines and innovation that we don't have before. Like, um, mixed media modeling. We'll probably see the return of different kinds of, you know, survey-based companies, or, or you know, there's probably a bunch of other unique ways in which we can measure impact uh, and and sales lift um, that don't, you know, require a pixel firing. Um, so, so I think it opens up another opportunity uh, for for some some companies. But yeah, 
uh, I would say next March, uh, you know, will be a turning point. Um, but, but I mean, you know, listen, Safari and Firefox um, have effectively already implemented these changes. Those um, browsers and the users on those browsers still have value. It's just not the same as Chrome is today. Um, but when you put everybody in the same camp or the same bucket, um, things have a way of like the equilibrium restores a bit. Um, so those other channels may seem similar investment because all things being equal, Chrome won't have an edge or an advantage that they didn't unless, you know, well, Flux, I, I think, create a path where others could do that as well. I completely agree with you and a number of the things you said. A, I don't know any other industry that flogs itself as badly as ours does. Our trades love to say the sky is falling every other week, it certainly feels like. And the other piece of this is just my big belief is that dollars aren't going to leave the system. They get maybe reallocated and how those get targeted and spent and how you measure the ROI on those does change. But advertisers are still going to advertise and digital media is going to keep growing because consumption keeps growing. And so... Well, we have to adapt to some change. I think that is something we're very, very good at, and we will all end up doing pretty well in the end is my my personal take there. So I think I'm on the same page. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think it's, it's more change for an industry that's kind of been built on change. Um, we'll be all right. I, I personally left the industry for a couple of years and came back, and I realized what I genuinely missed was the opportunity to solve problems that came up every three to six months and there's some defining moment we got to get over the the shift to mobile or shift to video or privacy or whatever that may be and i'm completely with you just the next one of those and it's what makes this fun i think and you know keeps me up at night at moments and uh we've got to deal with that i guess on that is there anything else keeping you up at night right now there there was certainly a time but you know and maybe this is just, you know, this is maybe more bigger advice than than just as it's specific to, to programmatic. But like, you know, I don't control those things, right? Like I, I can't control the decisions that Apple is going to make or what Google is going to do or what, you know, privacy legislation may dictate. The only thing I can do is control, you know, my reaction to them and the strategy that those uh, changes will require. And I like doing that. So as long as... The thing that you like doing is, you know, sort of in response to those changes, the changes itself don't worry me um, because it would imply that, you know, most of the time we were just, you know, setting sail, setting course and, you know, it was smooth sailing the whole time. But like that's all for, for, for many of us who've been in this rack for a long time. Like this is what we do is we weather change. Um, so, so, yeah, it doesn't really, you know. The only things that would keep me up at night are the things that are directly in my control. Um, but, you know, these bigger macro industry trends, like it just makes it a lot more interesting. Um, and, and I do believe strongly that constraints can sometimes drive greater and greater innovation. Um, and so uh, I am kind of curious to see some of the, the results of that when we get to the other side of some of these bigger changes. I think at times, too, it makes people play nice in the sandbox. And as an industry, we have to solve this problem. It's not unique that Index or Freestar is solving these. We all have to actually band together at times. And I think we're going to go further faster if we all are kind of pushing towards something. And I, I think there's not going to be one single solution for this. There will be several solutions. But we've got to decide what are those several solutions, not 15 different solutions. And I think ultimately that's a good thing. And some of the collaboration we've seen, the contributions of tech and industry groups and things, I think is really a nice path forward, frankly. I agree. I agree. And uh, 
Yeah, it sounds like you're like me in that way. Like that, that, that that's kind of the job, right? Like that that's the fun part. Um, I don't know anything else. I could go back to vitamins. But I, 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 don't even, I don't even know if that's the same world yeah. anymore. I can go go back to being a lawyer, although I don't think that'd be very good for uh, my mental health. Um, switching gears here a little bit, like I said earlier, you know, the way that I first sort of came in contact with your wealth of knowledge is during the pandemic and the the writings that you did during that. Um, flipping, I guess, to the business side a little more, what are some things you learned? you know, as a company during the pandemic, kind of takeaways, you know, what's your plan on bringing people back to the office? Like, it's a big topic right now that we're all sorting through. We at our company have decided to stay permanently fully remote because that works for us, but it's different for different businesses. I'm curious where your head's at right now. Yeah. um, Well, we learned a lot of things. One is um, we can be much more distributed um, than we had been in the past. And uh, we can work remotely uh, and work effectively remotely. And when you do uh, kind of an experiment at scale with all of your partners in the entire you know world, even even you know parts of the business that aren't directly linked, like you learn a lot. Um, and I was really proud of uh, how Index, but really our employees, made the adjustment and the adaptation. Um, it made us be a lot more, I think, thoughtful um, about what work meant and, and how we work. Um, and we've had to like be very open minded and figure it out. Like it's just when you're home all day, like where does work start and stop and, you know, helping, you know, fostering a different level of communication between manager and employee as it relates to those things. So so we did learn a lot there. Um and uh, I think it was really useful in a lot of ways. That being said, you know, if you pulled, uh, you know, all the indexers, like they're very much looking forward to seeing their colleagues again, um, you know, and they want to have a place to go where they can work with everybody again. Um, and so I think like most people, we're, we're not trying to be trailblazers on this one. We're trying to do what's right, uh, make sure everybody's safe first and foremost. And then from a secondary standpoint, what we're trying to do, uh, you know, is figure out like what's the right way to bring people back that want to come back um, under what conditions? How do we do that? You know, and I think, you know, we're, we're pretty comfortable with uh, as we start to open things up. Uh, and I think right now our only office that's open is Sydney, uh, which is true for a lot of companies. Uh, but as we open things up, you know, uh, our expectations are going to be pretty flexible um, as people, you know, have that, you know, acclimation time uh, to figure that out. Um, and again, safety kind of at the forefront of all that. So so I do envision that, you know, we're going to give people the opportunity to come into the office when they if they feel that that's what they want to do. Um but also give them the flexibility to, you know, keep doing some of the things that they may be uh, enjoyed about work from home uh, and try to figure out what that balance is going to be. But, you know, one thing we don't want to do is make any grand proclamations about the future of work and how this is all going to happen and everything else. It's just like, let's just take this slowly. Let's take this, you know, month to month at a time and and, and do this the right way um, and give everybody the chance to adjust. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, I traveled a lot. So like remote work for me was different, but kind of the same. Like I was used to, you know, being on a lot of uh, video conferencing calls. For other people, I think, you know, it was a huge adjustment. And there's, yeah, we're going to have to uh, kind of slowly find our way back. But but I do think we will always have 
an office culture, uh, meaning like there will always be a place for people to go because um, we, you know, it's important for different things. Um, but there could be other roles and other things where that's not a requirement, and maybe, maybe we're more open to that. But yeah, it's it's still very much in the air. How are you? How are you all thinking about it? I think it's a very company by company thing. We were sixty or seventy percent remote before the pandemic started, so we had all the tools built in. There was video conferencing in every single meeting to begin with. We had learned how to. Maybe not learn how to, but we focused a lot on building culture remotely. I don't think you ever nailed that. But I think if you're very, very intentional about it, you create the opportunities for people to still get to spend that time. You know, we did, we have been doing for a long time, a virtual speaker series, for instance. And we did multiple virtual retreats that were actually very successful and had kind of hackathon components to it, but a very big entertainment element to where the teams had to think kind of creatively with a very entertainment vibe to it. The humor that came out of this and creativity was just astonishing. And so I think those moments where you can create the opportunity to bond are important. Um, our founder and I, founder David and I actually did kind of a road show this past six weeks as the world has been opening up um, and went to five or six different cities and anybody that you know was vaccinated felt comfortable getting together joined and we had just some of the most amazing get-togethers and so that human element is wildly important to this whole thing we've decided to stay remote but are setting up opportunities where it's very um, easy for people to get together around we'll schedule breakfast in this city and a lunch in this city here and there so you get the human part of it you feel like you're part of a team but do get the benefits of remote but that just works for our company and i think it's wildly different for other companies i was talking to a ceo of another company actually this morning about this and he wants everybody back in their seats so badly to the point where he's like probably going to mandate it and he's like you can build what he's saying you can sort of build a job, but you can't build a career remotely. And I, I don't know that I necessarily agree with him there, but a big part of their culture was just leaning in and going to grab somebody when you need help on something or we're working on a project. And I think it's just different by business line. So I think it's very case by case. Yeah. I mean, the good that will come of it, I think, is that uh, it will create some variation, I would say, and in, in choice for uh, employees to find the right uh, setup for them at the right company for them. You know, uh, for the company that wants to be fully office 100% of the time, it's important to there. That's probably important to some some people too, and that's how they'll thrive and they'll have that option. But you know, the the idea that we're all kind of kind of do it the same way going forward, I, I think if if any paradigm has been completely broken, it's that one. Um, if it maintain, like the, I guess the real test will be, does that you know hold? I mean, over time, we do tend to follow you know, similar patterns, and we may, you know, eventually kind of fold into those things. But, you know, even just, you know, the way you all started your company uh, with, with, you know, a very intentional remote culture, it's like, you know, we have the technology and the ability to do those things. So we can create those right choices and, you know, find talent in all different kinds of markets and opportunities. It's, um, you know, I I think that's an encouraging thing long term, especially for people just entering the workforce or, or thinking about, changing things. You're not bound by geography the same way that you once were. Yeah. It's maybe, I think we talked about this, but very much a fast forward button of the pandemic has been to the future of work, the future of programmatic, a lot of different things here and there. And I think it's really probably helped the the employee in a lot of ways, their, their amount of flexibility to be able to live wherever they want to live 
do whatever they want to do, whatever that may be, has just changed so wildly over the course of this past year. And we've seen it right now. It's very much an employee market. It's tough to find folks generally, I think, as people started hiring. And I think it's going to be an advantage or a disadvantage to certain employers if they take too hard of a line of you have to be in person or we're 100 percent remote, because I think there's the right fit for the right people. And I, I, I think that's a good thing. I think choice is good. And I hope it doesn't, as you said, sort of we all decide it has to be one way where it's 40 hours a week in an office, because I think different personalities thrive in different environments. And as long as we can get the right people in those right seats, it's a net win for everybody. Completely agree. Awesome. Well, we will close things out today with uh, kind of a fun question. Okay. If Will, uh, Will today could give young Will some advice. What would be that number one piece of uh, advice that you would give that would help push you forward in your life? Oh, yeah. I think about this one all the time, uh, believe it or not. Uh, I'm lucky enough to like uh, have a few uh, people I mentor, uh, which is even just a weird kind of thing to say. But, you know, just I find like, you know, it's just kind of one of those things. And, and, and we meet a couple of times, uh, you know, a month and, you know, and, and really the only thing I'm mentoring them on is just like, I wish someone had said this to me when I was where you are. Uh, or I wish I just kind of realized um this then that kind of a thing and honestly i'd say the the thing to me back then is like you know you you have to almost like work isn't about you right like i wish it just you know it's like you know it, it, that was just like the thing i just didn't kind of get and i think there was a lot of turmoil and things i was worried about stuff oh why aren't they thinking about me for this or that the other thing and it's like you know and i always had like a chip on my shoulder and all the thing and it was just like just shut up and learn like pay attention, be of, like be of value to someone and, and lean in and do it. And, you know, uh, you know, I believe me, I had that chip like ground away through the years and you just like, you know, you realize like uh, it, it, how unhelpful it is. But yeah, I think, you know, but at the same time, you don't want to do it so much that you're, you, you lose some of your hunger or your ambition. And it's like finding that balance. Um, but that being said, if someone had said that to me, if I had the chance to say that to me back then, I wouldn't have listened to me. I would have thought I was full of shit. Um, so, so, so I, I, you know, it's a tough one. You know, the thing I needed to hear is probably not something I was capable of hearing. Um, but yeah, that as, you know, as things go. That's awesome. Well, Hey man, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. It's been a pleasure. Um, every time I get the chance to chat with you, I learn something new and just really appreciate your perspective. So thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you for having me. It was, it was a blast. Thank you again to our special guest, Will Doherty from Index Exchange for taking the time to chat with us. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you have a spare moment, please check us out on Google Play, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. For feedback or suggestions on guests, you can reach us at podcast at freestar.com. Special thanks to Matt Heinlein for our music and our marketing team for helping with editing and production and making sure people know this podcast exists. Until next time.